A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 50, starting with verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the second letter to the Philippines. Philippians? Philippians? Sorry. Chapter 2, starting with verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Jesus replied, When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, 
It is your responsibility. His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of the soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Here they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Today is Palm Sunday also called Passion Sunday. Like I said earlier today, we feel like we are on a narrative and emotional roller coaster. We move from triumph and celebration and the exaltation of the crowds, crying out for Jesus to save them, and quickly, quickly, 
we move to the calls to crucify Jesus, mocking and ridiculing him for what the crowds believe to be a failed kingdom. There is more scripture read on this Sunday than any other Sunday in the church calendar. And I'm not going to cover every part of our readings today. There's a lot of it. But just want to give a few reflections on the narratives and what they speak to us about the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. So as we talk about a triumphal entry, that might be something that feels a bit foreign to us. We don't really have leaders who just all of a sudden walk through our cities in um, kind of decorative ways, though throughout history and even modern history, we've had that. Um, but in first century Palestine, this was a pretty common occurrence. In fact, Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea, he would take the opportunity at, during the Passover feast to show his authority to the people. He would ride into the city of Jerusalem on a mighty steed, a really, really tall horse. And Passover was this time when the Jewish people remembered their exodus from slavery in Egypt, that God had heard the cry of his people when they were in slavery and had delivered them. But it was a mixed celebration because they had this in their rearview mirror. They had this thing, this is who we are as the people of God, a set free people. And now we can practice our faith, but they're still under the thumb of pagan oppressors of the Roman Empire. And they're not content with this arrangement. They long for a new exodus. Someday there will be a new exodus. There will be someone, a Messiah, who will rise up and will set us free and will liberate us from Rome. That's the hope of the Jewish people. So Pilate, what he would do, he's the Roman governor, he would show up as a not-so-gentle reminder that if anybody wants to try anything, you want to try any of these uprisings that you're talking about or this thing that you hope for, here's a reminder that I'm ultimately in charge. Pilate was the image of Rome itself. His power represented not only Caesar's political power, so the big guy, Caesar, the empire, but also the fact that many people worshiped Caesar as a god. So he represented the imperial religion. In fact, Caesar was considered to be son of God. That was what they called him, prince of peace. But his peace was always carried out at the end of a sword. Now, if you're a Jewish person at this time, different political groups had different views on how the Jewish people would ever be set free. How are we going to be liberated? Some of them looked to violence. It's only violent overthrow that could possibly accomplish this. Others looked to faithfulness to the law. If we could just be faithful to the law, God will deliver us. Some merely believed our destiny is tied to Rome, so we really need to appease them and to get into their good graces. And all of this is the context of Jesus' triumphal entry. Matthew says a lot of things in this triumphal entry, but he points us to another king, King David. When Jesus tells his disciples to get the donkey and the colt, he simply tells them to tell the owner the Lord needs them which is what um, David said when he talked about eating the consecrated bread. He said, the Lord needs them. So all of this is like alarm bells pointing, he's like David, he's like David. And if you're one of the people at this time, that's your hope. You're wanting to return to the time of King David, when the king was righteous and just, the true shepherd of the people, when God's people were prosperous, when they weren't under the thumb of pagan rulers. And Jesus rides on a donkey. This was consistent with the prophecies of a coming Messiah, but it looked way different than Pilate's triumphal entry. Remember, Pilate comes in on a tall horse. 
Jesus comes in on a donkey, which if you're riding a donkey, if you've ever done that before, you look people who are standing up directly in the eyes, right? This is inconspicuous. It's humble. People are laying down their clothes as a sign of respect. This guy is not just a great leader. This is the Messiah. This points back to what they did for the prophet Jehu in the scriptures. They shout, Hosanna. The cry is, save us, save us now. And a central theme to Israel's story is when God's people cry out, God hears them. That's who they are. So the question is, in the midst of our oppression, in the midst of our pain, does God hear us now? These expectations are that Jesus would rise up. He would raise up an army. He would conquer. And as we look throughout the rest of the week, Jesus would turn out to be pretty disappointing to many people in the crowd. He continued to talk about his coming death. Why would you do that if you're a conqueror? He allowed himself to be arrested and ultimately to be killed. I think like the crowds, we always think we know what we want of the world. And yet Jesus doesn't meet their expectations for what they want. We often live into the reality that one minute we shout, God, save us. And yet we constantly feel the pull towards other kings, kings that we think will live up to our expectations. We want Jesus to fit our cultural team, to do things as we would do them, to hate the people that we hate. Because of this, Palm Sunday on one hand is deeply sad. I was talking with um, Sam this morning and he acknowledged, he said, yes, it's like triumph and it's celebration, but it's also weird because they don't know what they're asking for. The expectations of the crowd as well as our expectations are constantly unmet. However, as I said earlier, we also recognize that Jesus redeems our Hosanna, that we don't always know what we want or what we're asking for, but he does. Jesus did save them. He saved all of us, but he didn't just simply defeat surface evil of the Roman Empire. By allowing the forces of evil to do their worst to him as our true Passover lamb, he defeated evil at its core. Through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and the results of sin, death itself. We hear this story continue with the Jesus and Barabbas before Pilate. Barabbas had likely been thrown in prison for his part in a violent rebellion. We talked about how that happened a lot. There were these violent rebellions that would emerge. So Barabbas likely believed that the liberation of Israel was in his hands and in the hands of his compatriots. But what happened is anytime somebody rose up and tried to do that, Rome was quick to suppress those uprisings. So the crucifixion was one of the main ways of doing this. Crucifixion was not an efficient way to kill someone. Fleming Rutledge points out that like the Elizabethan penalty of being hanged, crucifixion was designed not only to inflict suffering, but to send a message to the rest of the population. In fact, crucifixion was a way of keeping someone alive for as long as possible, even as you kill them. Rutledge says, the particularity of crucifixion was that it meant not just as a deterrent, but also specifically to degrade. No other method has ever matched it in terms of public disgust. That was its express purpose. The cross was a sign of contempt. 
A person was exposed and completely powerless, hung alongside a road for all passerbys to gaze upon. The New Testament writers, I don't know if you grew up in a church like this, but in my church, they like to emphasize all the particularities of what would have happened at the crucifixion, what's going on physically. And some of that can be interesting to study. And, but the New Testament writers don't really do that. They don't emphasize the details of the crucifixion. They emphasize the shame, the spitting, and the mocking. Rutledge says, Jesus consciously deliberately, voluntarily stepped into the place of utmost humiliation. He is the only person who in his whole life had nothing to be ashamed of, yet he made himself helpless in order to undergo this worst form of disgrace and abandonment. Notice Barabbas' first name. Barabbas' first name is Jesus. So the crowd is given a choice, and Matthew sets this up for us. Which of the two Jesuses should be released? The crowd are asked. Notice the crowd chooses the Jesus who's violent, who's a revolutionary. They choose what they know. They choose what they can control. In a sense, they choose what's practical. They choose the common sense choice. This guy is our revolutionary. He's the one who hates who we hate. Even if they don't like his methods, they still get him. We get him. And in this, we're also like the crowd because we cannot comprehend the way of suffering, of self-giving love. We so often choose the path of violence. Pilate did not want to release Barabbas. He simply wanted to avoid all guilt for his decision. Matthew paints him as a coward. As we have been grieving this week the loss of those who died at Covenant this past Monday, there's so many, I've talked to many of you and, and many others, and there's just so many emotions that rise to the surface during this time, and it may be a variety of emotions. We have seen the way of violence up close again. Um, for our country, this is consistent. It, it's happening over and over again. But then when, when it hits your neighborhood, your city, there's just, um, it's different. We're afraid, we're angry, we're hurting. Many of us are frustrated with our politicians who seem to say, we're going to wash my hands of this matter. Why can't we do something? The Apostles' Creed names Pontius Pilate, which is odd. We read the Creed and we hear about Mary and Jesus, and then we hear Pontius Pilate. Karl Barth says Pontius Pilate enters the Creed like a dog into a nice room. To us, Pilate may seem like a minor character, but Pilate represents pagan power and authority. But blame, blame for the state of our world can't just be placed in the hands of Washington politicians. That's not all. Matthew does not blame one group for Jesus' death. He's perfectly happy to spread the wealth of guilt around. But it's all of our fault. We all carry guilt. The chief priests and elders represent religious power. They've handed Jesus over. Pilate is a coward. He's hiding behind his military dominance which is also the instrument used to carry out his sentence. 
and the crowds themselves are guilty. It's the politicians, it's the religious leaders, it's the common crowds, it's everybody. And yet Jesus, in Jesus, there's also hope for redemption. What Jesus does is he acts out of a holy imagination that we don't often have, that we see it from glimpses from time to time, something different, but we get so locked up into our solutions. We get so locked up into our cultural tribes that we don't have that holy imagination. We often settle for winning a culture war or resign to the fact that things will just never change. Barabbas was guilty of his crimes. And in this, we're not just the crowds, we're also Barabbas. When Jesus dies, the sinner, the one beholden to false narratives, is set free. In Jesus, there is hope. There is a hope for redemption. And the good news of the gospel is just as all of us are guilty, redemption is available to all. Even in the midst of this willingness to inflict punishment on Jesus, there's still a witness to his innocence. Pilate's wife sends Pilate a message that she's had a dream, and she knows that this innocent man should not be sent to his death. In fact, if you read Matthew's gospel, strategically, there are women throughout the book who tell the truth in the midst of all of the lies. There are these women who are particularly placed to speak truth in the midst of all kinds of um, confusion, and Pilate's wife is one of those. In our world, there's this constant call for us to get our hands dirty, that in order to be good in the world, we have to do a little bit of evil. We have to do a little bit that's wrong. We have to settle for things that we know really aren't best for us. We're told to be willing to accept a bit of wrong in order for the greater good, and we say, well, that's just being practical. Because of this, we don't really know true innocence when we see it. Jesus is innocent, and through his death, he invites Barabbas and all of us to step into freedom. Then we hear the soldiers mocking Jesus. Maybe they just want to poke a little fun at the supposed king of the Jews before his death. They strip him of his garments. They put a scarlet robe on him. They make a crown out of thorns and place it atop his head. They give him a staff. They mockingly herald him as king, but then they spit on him, and they take that same staff, and they strike him on the head with it. One of the great criticisms of the Apostles' Creed that we say almost every week is it seems to shortcut so much of Jesus' teaching and ministry and healing. So we have Jesus born, and then it says he suffered, and he died, and was buried. And we go, okay, well, he did a lot of stuff in between there. Where is all of that? This is because many have believed that so much of Jesus' life is summarized in the word suffered. Jesus' very presence brings about suffering. Jesus' very presence is a threat to the powers that be, and there's always a reaction against. Notice how these events parallel Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So notice, he's struck in the face by the soldiers, and he doesn't retaliate. Turn the other cheek, right? They take off his outer and inner garments, leaving him naked. Remember, if they ask for your coat, give them your shirt as well. The soldiers compel someone to carry a burden for them. Remember, if they ask you to go a mile, go the second mile. This time, the burden is the crossbeam on which Jesus will be hung. 
Like in our Old Testament reading, Jesus is the one who hears the voice of the Father, who does not hide his face from the insult and the spitting, who has set his face like flint. The kingdom of God cuts through the kingdoms of this world, not by worldly strength or influence, but simply by self-giving love. True love will always be met with resistance, but it is the way of God's new world. It's not just the soldiers who are mocking Jesus. The crowds and religious leaders are doing so as well. In fact, they mention three things. They, they recall his words that he said he would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Then they refer to him as the son of God mockingly, and they do so twice. And then he has saved others, but he seems unable to save himself. What they don't realize is as they're speaking this, they're actually speaking prophetically without actually knowing it. So when they say, hey, you said you were going to destroy this temple that was your body and raise it in three days, they don't realize they're actually speaking what is about to happen. That when they, they refer to him as the son of God, they're actually speaking truth. They're not speaking in parody. And then when they say he saved others, but he seems unable to save himself, that in and of itself is speaking who God is, that he's not trying to save himself, but he's giving himself for the world. In this, Matthew recalls Jesus' baptism. If you remember at his baptism, God declares, you are my son whom, in whom I am well pleased. And it seems like throughout Jesus' life, there's all these things that question that or that come against that. So it starts in the desert in his temptation when the tempter kind of pokes at him and says, is it right for God's son to be hungry? If he's God's son, shouldn't people see the dramatic ways in which God will protect him? If he's really God's son, is the cross really necessary? There's all these questions against Jesus. Are you really who you say you are? And if so, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? Well, here, that's what the mockers are doing at the cross. If you're really God's son, why don't you destroy the temple and raise it in three days? Isn't that what you said you would do? If you really are God's son, why don't you save yourself? Throughout Jesus's life, there's all these accusations because the way of Jesus looks so strange. And to a world expecting a triumphing Messiah, it looks weak. They're expecting a political conqueror, a mighty king who would raise up an army. They didn't expect it to end like this, dying at the hands of the very empire that's oppressing them, handed over by the priests who are corrupting the temple that Jesus calls out over and over again. But again, rather than turning to violence, Jesus gives himself. And this isn't just something he does. This is who God is, the giving God. From the cross, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew's gospel, this is the only thing Jesus says on the cross. He stepped into brokenness, into oppression, and even into the sinfulness of the world, and he's taken it upon himself. If you notice in this narrative, there's all these images of, of kingship, but they're all flipped upside down. So his crown is thorns. His throne is the cross. He has a right-hand man and a left-hand man, but they're two of Israel's zealots who are crucified on either side of him. Do you remember when James and John are arguing about who's going to sit at his right and his left hand? And Jesus is like, you don't know about this stuff. You don't know what's going to happen. This is what he's speaking of here. He's got a royal placard 
which is common at the time, but it's written ironically, and it says that he's the king of the Jews. He's declared as king by the crowds, but it's in derision and in mockery. And then he's even given a royal drink, royal wine. But instead of fine wine, it's the drink of a poor man, a mixture of wine and vinegar on a sponge. Jesus lets out a cry of resignation, entrusting his spirit to the Father. And at that moment, creation responds. So the temple veil is torn in two. In Jesus, God has done something new to which the temple was a sign. He is the city on a hill, Calvary, and he's crucified outside the city walls. But that's not all. Matthew tells us the bodies of many holy people who have died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people, and that all results in an earthquake. So what the heck does that mean? I'm really asking. Do you know? <laughs> um, we're not sure. Matthew is not quick to tie this up for us. What's going on here? It's possible that this is Matthew's descriptive way of saying death has lost its hold on the people of God at that moment. My friend, Dr. David Harvey, is a pastor in Calgary, and he said this week that this may represent the collapsing of space and time at the crucifixion. So we see all at once the end of all things, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and that's become visible all in this one place at the crucifixion. So fascinating. And all the verbs here are passive. The rocks were split. The graves were open. The bodies were raised to life. So notice God is doing all of this. This is a sign that the powers of sin and death have not won. God is at work, even in the darkest moment. I don't know about you, but I think we need to hear that this week. When things are at their darkest, we have to remember God is still here. God is still working. We have a centurion who perhaps represents those who are outside of the family of Israel those who will come to faith in Jesus. Matthew's already told us about the Magi in chapter two who come from far away. There's a centurion in chapter eight, a Roman centurion who's drawn to Jesus. We have the Canaanite woman of Matthew chapter 15 who we've pointed to over and over again. All of these people see what's happening and they praise God. The centurion represents perhaps all of them and he looks upon Jesus and he has this final word, surely he was the son of God. The centurion's declaration summarizes what Matthew wants the hearers of his telling of the Jesus story to say and to choose, that he is the son of God. There's a Latin term, incurvatus in se, and it means curved in on oneself, which may have been coined by Augustine of Hippo, and it describes a life that's lived inward for oneself rather than outward for others. I think this condition in Curvatus in Se is um, evident in our, how we talk in our world today. That many of our arguments begin from seeking to try to preserve our own tribe, our own way of life. So when faced with any cultural issue, our first tendency is self-preservation. Our hearts are curved in. We look at our own needs first. 
In our Philippians reading, Paul says, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't operate this way. He didn't consider his own needs first. In fact, it says he made himself nothing. That doesn't mean for Paul that Jesus was divine and then he stopped being divine. It's quite the opposite of that. By making himself nothing, by laying down his privilege for the sake of others, Jesus revealed to us what it means to be divine. This is who God is, the one who gives God's self for the world. In Christ, there is a transformation of our incurvatus in say by the one who made himself nothing. In his radical love, we're changed. Isaiah 56 that we read, the suffering servant says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. This is the image of Jesus on the cross. But the idea that the world is saved through suffering is still controversial today, just as it was in his day. We still are consistently drawn to the allure of products or services or ideologies that tell us we can win every day or that our systems of violence and division and marginalization of the other are the only practical ways to live. You have to accept a little bit of that because that's just how the world works, is what we're told. Yet we see Jesus who laid down his life. He endured the cross for our sake. From a worldly point of view, he lost. But the next words give us a glimpse of Easter on a Sunday even like this Sunday. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He who vindicates me is near. In the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated but not by going around suffering, escaping suffering, avoiding suffering, but through it. Now, suffering is not the point of the Christian faith. In his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone writes, I find nothing redemptive about suffering in itself. The gospel of Jesus is a story about God's presence in Jesus's solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. Suffering is not the end goal. It's not the aim or purpose of the Christian faith. We experience suffering because the world is not as it should be. So suffering comes with those who live faith, hope, and love in the midst of a broken world. But this is not the end Vindication is real. Resurrection is real. Even today. Amen.